Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A while back, Ashish Jha, a doctor who is a professor of medicine and a public health expert, taught an online class. So, you know, I put together a course for Harvard about Ebola, and it was called Preventing the Next Pandemic. That was about two years ago. Jaw says he's not in any way clairvoyant, though at the time, he and his colleagues in public health all believed a new pandemic was likely to arrive in the coming decades. And they knew, or at least predicted, quite a bit more than that. You know, and and the way that everybody played out the scenario was that it would be a viral infection. It would start in China and it would go global very, very quickly, exactly as this has played out. Now, most of us thought it would be an influenza virus and not a coronavirus. So that's different. And, you know, some of the specifics are a little bit different. But this one is playing out more or less the way I think almost every expert who looks at pandemics and thinks about pandemics uh, expected it to play out. Why did they expect it to play out that way? Well, Ja, who's the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute, says there are a few reasons. First, you've got people increasingly getting into animal habitats. And that's how this coronavirus started. It made the leap from animals to humans. Second, climate change has meant that animals have wandered further from the spots that have traditionally been their homes, though it's not clear if or how much that played a role in the current pandemic. And then there's China. Yes, it's a country with lots of people packed closely together, but that's true of many places around the world. There are a lot of interactions between humans and animals that are different in terms of the types of diets. Uh, And we actually worried a lot about bird flu because of wet markets and kind of the way chickens and and other animals are uh, dealt with in parts of China. And we thought that that's probably going to be the source of, you know, some bird flu jumping from birds to humans. That was the scenario that everybody worried about. Fortunately, when public health experts worried about the pandemic around the corner, they had a plan for dealing with it. Pandemics are nothing new, and they've been extensively studied. Governments would mobilize, scientists would create tests and then therapies and vaccines. There would be extensive testing of individuals and isolation of those who are infected. And then, at some point, either a vaccine or a therapy would come through and you wouldn't need to isolate people anymore. Ja calls it Public Health 101. That was the game plan. That was the game plan that everybody had practiced and thought about. And that's the game plan that has not been executed super effectively. One of the missteps in the U.S., of course, was testing and the fact that after we got off to a slow start, Americans were promised that lots and lots of test kits were on their way. 2,500 kits, including tests, has gone out this week. That's roughly 1.5 million tests that will be available this week. We'll continue to build on that number. And what that did was that actually harmed us further because local labs, state labs, private companies basically said, oh, okay, the federal government has this solved. We don't have to work on it. And then it became apparent to everybody a week later that there were no million test kits. It didn't exist. It wasn't there. It wasn't being shipped. No one was getting any. And so then everybody started working on it. Now, Jaw says, there's a chance to get back on track. We do not have to shut down life for months and months. Look, we're so far behind right now that we've got to find a way to reset with this virus. The way you reset is you shut everything down for a period of time. What is that period of time? 
I don't know, two to four weeks, two weeks, three weeks, but really shut it down. Like none of this spring break partying in Florida, like really stop it. And then at that point, because of the natural history of the virus and how long people are infected, things will really slow down. The infection rates will really come to a grinding halt. Not forever, but enough that you can start relaxing controls. Then a new plan has to kick in, the reset plan. So what's it going to take to allow people to get back to work, to go out to restaurants, and still keep coronavirus in check? Well, we'll get to that. But first, it's worth thinking about what sort of pandemic this is. The Black Death, the bubonic plague, killed something like a third of Europeans in the 1300s. Death rates for COVID-19 are more in the range of 1% to 3%, depending on what kind of data you're using. So how does what we're living through compare to what the world has seen? So, um, you know, it, it is hard to go back to, like, you know, comparing this to, let's say, a pandemic from 500 years ago, where, right, there, there were pandemics right. that wiped out a third of the population. Right. Um, so the way I look at it is, okay, the most recent pandemic we had was the swine flu pandemic of 2009. We didn't shut down society. We didn't panic in this way. Not that we should be panicking now, but we didn't take it quite as seriously. And that's because the mortality rate from the swine flu ended up being about 0.02%. So my best guess is that this pandemic will kill 50 times as many people as the swine flu did. And even a 1% mortality, and, and by the way, anyone who tells you they know exactly what the case fatality rate from this pandemic is, you know, I think they're, they're making it up. We don't know, but we have a range. Right, right, right. And for me, the range right now is if you do a good job and the health system functions and doesn't collapse, you know, it should be around 1%, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, but around 1%. But if you think about 1%, and most epidemiologists are predicting that 40 to 60% of the world's adult population will end up getting infected, and you start doing the math, you know, that's, let's say, 4 billion people in the world will end up getting infected, and that means mm -hmm. 40 million people will die. That's a very large number. In the U.S., it might be, you know, the Imperial College just put out a report where they estimated that 2 million people will die. Just to give you a feel for that, that's more people than have died across all of our wars since America was founded back in, you know, 1776 or 1789. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's, right. it's, it's a big number and it'll all happen over a six to 12 month period. It's pretty devastating. I, I want to get into some specifics, but just give me a sense, a little bit of the future here. Do you think, you know, we were talking about how, you know, we're living in closer contact as a species with, uh, with animals. Um, there are very, very dense places um, in, in the world, and our population continues to grow. It's not, it's not diminishing anytime soon, at least. Does that mean to you that we are in an age of pandemics where, yes, here's one right in front of us, but this is maybe not a, a once-in-a-hundred-year event anymore? Yeah. So I think that's right. I think we're seeing this in other aspects of our lives as well, is that certain things that used to happen very rarely are starting to happen more often. I think climate change does accelerate this. I think other environmental changes accelerate this. And and just globalization accelerates this, right? I mean, China has become an incredibly mobile nation. Millions of people from China travel around the world every year. 
Um, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, fly out every day. And that's true for India. It's becoming true for Brazil. And so in this highly interconnected and interdependent world, we should expect that there will be more pandemics. And I mean, look, the nightmare scenario that we used to worry about with a pandemic bird flu, people often worried that it would maybe kill 10% of the population. 10% mm -hmm. would make it you know, so much dramatically worse. It would destabilize societies. It would cause governments to fall. It would be yeah. awful. I don't think that this coronavirus, you know, has made that risk any less uh, apparent. I think it's just brought it to the forefront to people that like we are going to have decades of pandemics, not hopefully not as bad as this one, but we need an entire game plan for how to deal with it so that we're not fumbling the way we're fumbling right now. And that we have yeah. a, an approach that keeps the world safe and uh, helps us get through these things without the kind of pain we're living through now. So I've been reading in recent days about a test um, that can determine if you've ever had coronavirus, not just if you have it right this second. Um, because people like that who had it, they could get things for the elderly. They could like go to work when maybe other people can't go into work. Um, is there a test like that that any of us could take? Yes. It isn't available yet in the United States, um, but it's coming. Okay. South Korea has developed it, and American labs are developing it. Um, so basically, there is a way to test people to see if they've been exposed and if they've had the infection and if they are you know, likely immune. Um, we assume that this virus is going to act like every other virus that we know, where if you get the infection and you clear it, you should be immune to it, at least for some period of time. And that is going to be extremely helpful because it will tell us both how much infection has already spread through the community and people have recovered without knowing, and that, that would be great. And right. then, as you say, it'll allow us to identify people who can safely go back to work, who can safely interact yes. with high-risk populations. And that will be extremely helpful. So that test is available in South Korea. We're developing it in the U.S. It's hard to know timeline of when exactly we'll have it widely available in the U.S., but I'm hopeful that it'll be in the next few weeks. And and I, you know, I, I think of this too, because in the past couple of months, we all know people who've had the cold or the flu kind of wondered if it was coronavirus, but they could not get tested. And so maybe they're now immune. Like maybe they've passed over kind of to that other side where they're okay. Like you say, they can go to work. They could help their grandmother with something, but they don't know. So they're staying at home like everybody else, not knowing they're fine to go out. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And we are in a situation where our lack of testing capacity, both for testing of people who are actively infected, but also testing of people who've been previously infected but have now recovered, is really hampering our ability to deal with this virus. And so there's a lot of work, I would say, finally starting to happen on this, and we're making progress. But you know, once you waste two plus months with a pandemic, uh, it takes more than just a couple of weeks of activity to get caught up. We're probably still a couple of weeks away from where we need to be. I think in early April, and I say this fingers and toes crossed, um, we will be at a point where we'll have extensive testing of people for active infection, and my hope is soon thereafter, in the week or two that follows, ability to have testing for uh, to see who has been previously infected. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Ashish Jha. He's the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. He's also professor of global health at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. 
Let's talk a little bit about that future. Um, you make a really big point in terms of getting a hold on coronavirus long term in the U.S., this issue of, you know, as the spring progresses, as the summer progresses, as the fall progresses, suppression versus mitigation. Can you just talk about what the difference is in approach of those two things? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's important for people to understand that this pandemic is not going to just one morning, we're not gonna wake up and it's all over. The only way this pandemic comes to a close is one of two things happen. Enough people are infected that essentially the virus stops finding hosts to infect and it kind of burns out. And people talk about that as herd immunity. Okay. Alternatively, we get a vaccine and the vaccine is effective and it works. Those are the only two ways that the pandemic comes to a close. All of us believe that that is a 12 to 18 month period of time before we're done with this coronavirus. That's a long time. That's a long time right. to, for life to be disrupted. And so we've been doing a lot of thinking about how do we live the next 12 to 18 months in a way that doesn't destroy our economy, doesn't rip the fabric of our society by isolating everybody, but also doesn't kill millions of people. That's the kind of balancing act. And the strategy that most of us have kind of landed on, and I've been talking to a lot of different people from different backgrounds who study this, doctors, public health people, policy experts, is that first, you got to get the infection under control in, your, in our communities. And that's the effort of really trying to do suppression. This whole social, physical distancing, keep everybody away from each other. All of that is to just get the virus to stop spreading at very high numbers and get it to start, you know, really slow down and suppress the virus in our communities. That has to be coupled with really extensive testing because how do you know it's gotten suppressed? Well, you gotta test people. You gotta know how much infection there is. Once we have that, then we can start relaxing some of the controls. You know, people can maybe go back to work. Maybe we have kids go back to school. Maybe we won't have mm -hmm. baseball games with 50,000 people crowded into a stadium, but maybe we can open up some restaurants. And, and bars mm -hmm. and have some amount of activity and normalcy in our life. But if we're doing that, we've got to be doing extensive ongoing testing to make sure that that isn't causing a spike in infections. Because if we get a spike, our hospitals will go, get overwhelmed and people will start dying quickly. And so if we can do that vigilance and really build up capacity for testing, and then the other huge thing is we've got to build up capacity of our hospitals. Because if there is a spike, you want to know that if you get sick, there is a hospital bed available for you. There's an ICU there, a right, doctor or a nurse right, is right. safe to take care of you. This, this is not going to be easy. We can do it, but we've got to like put in a game plan and start implementing it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. I'm going to be back with Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. And we're going to talk about how to effectively balance the coronavirus outbreak um, and keep alive an economy that basically relies on people getting outside and spending their money. Josh says it can be done. Our government can do it. We've got this full interview on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Dr. Ashish Jha. He's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. We've been looking at how the government might move forward in a way that avoids the economy collapsing, um, but also in a way that stems this pandemic. Jha argues that after a period of shutdown, there has to be extensive testing, not just to see who has COVID-19, but also to see who's had it and maybe just didn't realize that they did because those people are critical. They can help the vulnerable. They can go back to work when maybe other people can't. They can teach in school and on and on. So, uh, Dr. Jaw, my question to you is, if it is going to take extensive testing, as you say, if it's going to take some degree of quarantining, this very methodical approach, does that seem to you like something, um, I don't know, that you can imagine our government is capable of pulling off? Um, I can imagine. I, and, and I know that surprises okay. some people, but I can imagine. I, I can imagine in a couple of ways. First of all, there's a ton of intellectual and other f- types of expertise in the federal government. Uh, at the CDC, on the COVID task force at, at the White House, you've got amazing people mm-hmm. working on this. Um, I know people worry about whether our president is going to be able to take this seriously. The president himself as a, as a single person is only one person. The federal government goes beyond any one person. And I think when the leadership realizes that any other plan, one that lets the infection run wild or one that shuts down our society, both of them are going to be so horrific, both economically and personally to people, that people will come to understand that there is only one path out. And that path is this balancing act between letting the infection run a little but suppressing it when we need to, and uh, doing extensive testing, giving up a few things that we love for a little while until this disease comes to an end, but getting through until we have effective therapies, but ultimately until we have a vaccine that brings a pandemic to an end. I think the federal government's gonna get there. I'm worried that what they're gonna do is it's sort of to quote an old Winston Churchill line. Winston Churchill supposedly said, Americans always do the right thing. They just like to try everything else first. I'm worried that our federal government right, 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 is eventually right. going to do the right thing, but they're right now experimenting with everything else first. Well, I also wonder about, um, I mean, we're kind of a country that values privacy and rugged individualism. And you, I mean, you have places like Singapore that uh, my understanding is never, ever shut down schools and was able to get a pretty good handle um, on this new coronavirus. Uh, but, but there may be a lot less in terms of concerns about civil liberties in some of the places that were able to do that. So I also wonder if like what we need to do is in some sense constitutionally at odds with who we think we are. No, I, I think that's a very reasonable point, that how much civil liberties are we willing to give up? And, you know, my hope is not a lot. I, I'm a pretty big fan of our civil liberties, and I uh, think that we have to be very, very careful that we don't use this period to turn America into a surveillance state. I don't think that mm-hmm. we need to do that. We may need to do a little bit of more active surveillance by public health people. And if it's done at a state level and... You know, and if people understand that the alternative to that is shutting down all activity and making everybody stay in their homes for long periods of time, that people will be willing to tolerate a little bit more of the kind of disease surveillance in the community. And 
because a lot of this stuff happens at the state level, you know, my feeling is if you don't love your federal government, that's okay. The data is going to primarily sit with states and states are going to run this. And, you know, once it's all over, hopefully we can uh, bring it to a close and learn the lessons, but wipe away the, the data. So I, I don't think we need a, a total surveillance state here. We will need to tolerate a little bit of uh, more testing and, and giving up some freedoms. Like if you are infected, you may have to be quarantined. And, you know, people are not mm-hmm. going to love that. But the alternative is if people yeah. aren't willing to tolerate that, then, then we can't have a functioning society. Hmm. Um, do you worry that uh, that all this social distancing uh, will maybe get a handle on things? We'll start to see numbers going down. We'll all be like, yay, we'll open the doors. We'll go out. Kids will go to summer camp. We'll go see baseball games again and stuff. And we'll be right back where we are now in a few months because – there will be a lot of people who never ha- have gotten the disease and all of a sudden they will have it. I do worry about that and I worry a lot about complacency. And um, as we head into the summer months, there's a little bit of evidence that maybe things will be not quite as bad in the summer. I don't want to overstate that, by the way. I, there are people who think that the summer will end the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, that is uh-huh. not. I have no reason to believe that's true. But you can imagine it slows things down, throwing the social distancing. And all of a sudden, I worry a lot that people are going to let down their guard and think that this is over. That's what happened in the 1918 flu pandemic. There were millions of people who died in the spring, but the summer was pretty good and everybody relaxed. And then the disease came back with a vengeance. And instead of killing a few million, it killed tens of millions. And that is entirely a scenario that could happen here if we're not smart and if we are not ready. And so we have to get ready for a fall and winter that could end up being quite brutal. But the good news is we know Hmm. we can jump on it. We don't have to shut down our lives for six months if we do the right things. Do you feel like, in contrast to previous pandemics, uh, that we now have tools to fight this that maybe we just never had before? Absolutely. So the great news is we have a lot of tools at our disposal that we did not have a century ago. The the biggest one is we have a fabulous scientific community and infrastructure. I mean, to think about this, the first time anybody outside of China even became aware this virus existed or this uh, infection existed, we didn't know it was a virus, was December 31st, 2019. So basically the beginning of this year, end of last year. Within two weeks, we had the virus identified. Within a week, we had the virus sequenced. Within a week, we had tests that could identify the virus. It has been phenomenal. Two months later, we have phase one trials of the vaccine. So I think the scientific community has been just nothing short of extraordinary. It is giving us a lot of tools that will help us. Um, We have to buy time. Time is on our side. If we can buy time, keep the virus suppressed, keep it manageable. The scientists will pull through for us with vaccines and therapies. Those were not available 100 years ago or any time in the past the way they are now. This is kind of a big picture question, but uh, uh, a while back before this happened, I I had a conversation with um, uh, Dr. Peter Bach from Memorial Sloan Kettering, and um, he talked a little bit about how we spend a lot of money on uh, drugs that treat very often not many people, and we tend to ignore sort of much bigger picture issues, uh, diabetes and heart disease and deaths of despair and everything. And as I've seen uh, the response 
to this novel coronavirus unfold. I, I can't help thinking sometimes about the millions of people, the millions of children whose lives, let's say they never get this they or they get it, but it's not a big deal. But nevertheless, because of what's happened economically, their lives will be forever changed, like the trajectory of that life, uh, because their parent doesn't have a job anymore or they can't eat properly or something, will never be the same as it was going to be. And I just think, like, it, how in your mind do you think about public health, right, public health? How do you balance, like, the sort of immediate issue of surge, you know, surge cases in hospitals and this long-term issue of, let's say, let's call it deaths or lives of despair? Yes. No, it's a fabulous question. And I think my opinion is this is a false dichotomy, and let me lay out why. Okay. If you let the disease, let's say we can't tolerate an economic shutdown because of all the effects that it's going to have on people's lives, and we're just going to let this disease run. When we start having tens of thousands of people dying every day and our entire mm-hmm. healthcare system bring, brought to a standstill and you can't get a hospital bed if you have a heart attack or a stroke or in a car accident and doctors and nurses are getting infected and dying, let me tell you, the economy will uh, grind to a halt in that case too. Yeah. So that's this idea of where it's your money or your life. I don't see it that way. I see in either scenario, if we shut everything down for 18 months, it'll destroy our economy and that will have massive effects on people's lives. If we let everything run, it will kill lots of people and then shut down our economy and have massive effects on people's lives. So those are, mm-hmm. to me, neither of them is a particularly appetizing approach. So I think there's got to be a middle ground. And listen, the issues around economic effects, unemployment, the effects it's going to have on kids and, and others and young adults who are just graduating high school and college and going into an economy, right, right, right. those right. to me are, are real. And, but to me, those are fixable. That's where you need strong economic stimulus. We need to help people get through this period. We need to invest in in helping those people get their lives back. We need to take think about all the kids who are not getting enough nutrition and getting mediocre education because they're trying to get it from home, often in chaotic situations. And we say, what are we going right. to do to invest in those kids nine or 12 or 18 months from now? Those to me are not ideal, but they're largely fixable if we decide it's super important that we do it. We're never bringing back the millions of people who will die if we don't take this approach. So I, I see it as we have two sets of bad choices. A third path is tolerable, and we can do it, and we can get through it. And the costs of that third path are fixable with money. And I know that money doesn't grow on trees, but we can, we're a pretty wealthy country, and we can help make people whole to some extent. I don't want to make it seem like it'll all be fine and dandy as though nothing ever happened. But I do think we can make a lot of that back for people. But we can't bring people back who are going to otherwise die if we let this infection run rampant. Ashish Jha is the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. Thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you want to hear more about what Dr. Jaw believes we need to do in order to beat the coronavirus, we've got some of his recent articles for The Atlantic on our website, innovationhub.org. 
There you will also find stories of some of the worst epidemics and pandemics in history and efforts by physicians to prevent even more of them.